just trying to keep your mind intact. And when you see what the worst thing that threw me is when I saw people on Everest that st- are still there, their bodies, mm. that really upset me because that was somebody's um, family member. And so like you can actually see that on your way up? Yeah. So I saw, I'm pretty sure it was Scott Fisher sitting there with his bag on his head um, at night and my torch like sort of hit him and I looked and I got really, really upset about it. Um, but I'd been practicing that. So what I'd done is I had been sitting down practicing um, two or three times, just very, just visualizing some really serious obstacles I was going to come across. And I really visualized them so I could feel the emotion welling up inside me. And one of them was seeing people there. Another one was getting caught in an avalanche or et cetera. And then as soon as I could feel that emotion welling up sort of in my eyes, I knew I was at that point. And then I'd change the way I was thinking and I'd handle, and then I'd visualize myself handling every situation in a really powerful manner. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Life Livers Academy. I'm Jamie O'Donnell, and the purpose of this podcast is to connect you with the people, ideas, mindsets, and inspiration to empower you to chase your dreams, unlock your potential, and live life to the fullest each day. Get ready for some inspiring conversations and incredible insights from people who are out there living life, having fun, and dominating their chosen path. I appreciate you tuning in. Now let's get this episode underway. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Life Livers Academy podcast. Super excited for today's interview. Got an absolutely incredible guest. This episode is going to be an absolute banger. But before we dive into it, I just wanted to stop and just say thank you to everyone who has subscribed to the podcast, who's shared a podcast episode out on social media, uh, or who's left a rating and a review. Every action that you take like that, whether it's sharing on social, leaving a rating and review, uh, just really helps us grow the podcast and reach new listeners. Um, We're starting to get some real traction with the podcast now, consistently showing up in the charts. Uh, And so I just wanted to stop before we dive in and just say thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, And yeah, let's get into it. Today's episode is going to be awesome. I've got an absolute fantastic guest joining me. His name is Mike Alsop. He is a Kiwi adventurer. He is an airline pilot. He is a speaker and he's the author of the books High Altitude and High Adventure. Um, To give you a bit of a background on Mike's story, he's done things like summited Everest. Uh, He's run seven marathons and seven continents in seven days. He's run the world's highest marathon. Uh, He has returned (laughs) replicas of the stolen Yeti in Nepal. Uh, He's a guy that's just out there living life to the fullest. He's someone who, uh, you know, has been able to consistently show up with courage, face his fears, uh, overcome big obstacles, challenge himself, uh, and just live a really passionate life. So I know that there's going to be a lot in this episode, particularly around mindset, particularly around getting the most out of yourself and adventuring and just living life to the fullest. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, great. Great to be here. Fantastic. Hey, one, I, I'm just going to start at the beginning. From what I understand, um, I mean, I did a lot of research on you. Of Like I say, I've had your book here. Um, my mum gifted me your book many years ago. Uh, and I know you've got another one that's come out recently. But I did, did a bit of research in the lead up to this interview. Um, and you're a hard guy to research because you need about four hours to interview. <laughs> um, but I think it makes sense to start at the beginning. It seems to me like there was a pretty pivotal point um, in your life, which was uh, a plane crash off the coast of Hawaii. And, um, you know, I guess moments like that, a lot of people either get a second lease on life and decide that they're going to go out and live it, or some people probably go into their shells a bit and uh, become risk adverse and and really don't want to do that. 
I take it that was a really pivotal moment for you. You've gone on to do a whole bunch of crazy adventure and, and really like try and get the most out of life since then. Can you talk to us about that experience? And um, I guess that's how you shaped you moving forward. Sure. So the, um, the, I mean, the accident, the plane crash, I mean, just briefly, we were ferrying an aeroplane from San Francisco to uh, back to New Zealand. It was a small aeroplane and it was, you know, it was for a little company called Great Barrier Airlines. And uh, we had to stop in Hawaii, Samoa, and then on the way home. So we had an island hop on the way home. And we, the aeroplane's only designed to fly 300 miles and we had to fly uh, 1,700 miles to um, get across to Hawaii. So what they did is they pulled all the, um, the seats out of the aircraft and they put five large fuel tanks Cut a long story short, all the appropriate checks were done um, by the FAA and those fuel tanks started malfunctioning after we got past halfway. Uh, the wrong size feeder hose was installed, which wasn't picked up because the engineers told us they had flow checked it, et cetera, et cetera. So um, in, we ended up in the water. It was pretty dramatic. Uh, it was 150 miles off the coast of Hawaii at night on a three-metre swell. We knew that no one had ever survived. 350 aircraft had gone down and and a thousand people have vanished, and and we were there was just no chance. So yeah, the impact, you know, the, action, the whole accident was very dramatic. We got picked up by a ship um, and taken back to uh, mainland America. Came home, and when I got home, I mean, it was a turning point for my life for sure. But it wasn't in a way, you know, things just didn't fall into place for me. What happened is I started uh, I realizing life's obviously really short. Made the most of it. Um, you know, I spoke to people about what had happened to me, which meant I didn't have any post-traumatic stress around it, which was really good. Um, and then, but what happened is I started wanting a life of adventure and I started, and I didn't know what to do and I wasn't passionate about anything. I remember I got into the airline uh, probably two, two years later and I was an airline pilot and I was absolutely loving being an airline pilot. I was flying all over the world, but I, sort of lost my little mojo and I, I couldn't put my finger on it. And it was, you know, I'd been for 10 years jumping out of bed with this goal of being an airline pilot and I'd already, and I'd achieved it. And so, so I was a bit flat and, and so I thought, right, I need some goals. So I started pulling out thin air goals like running marathons and I failed, which is crazy. Um, and the coast to coast down south and I didn't even start that. And I thought, you know, I took a big step back and went, you know, I failed at those things. I can achieve things, but why did I fail? And so I realized it was, was because I wasn't passionate, but I didn't know how to find my passion. So I just started reading and I just started reading more and more and more books. And what I described it as is like a big funnel above my head and I was filling it full of ideas and they were getting more and more refined. And then finally, you know, I sort of found my focus and my focus was adventure and then that focus on mountaineering. So I read all Ernest Hemingway's books, for example, and I challenged myself to read those. And he's a great American author and, and an adventurer. And he ran with the bulls in Spain. So I picked myself up, went to Spain, ran with the bulls. Uh, don't do it. It's a really dumb idea, really, to tell the truth. Um, came back to New Zealand, read his next book and did a bit more research and found out he didn't run with the bulls and he watched. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then he climbed Kilimanjaro. So I went and climbed Kilimanjaro. And all of a sudden, Ernest Hemingway, one of the greatest adventurer and authors of the 20th century, I was doing some stuff he was doing. So ever slowly, I didn't go straight to Everest from there. That's my belief in myself slowly started growing. And then as it grew, then I started <clears throat> reading books like Rob Hall and Gary Ball and some of their climbs. And then I 
I started getting some really good professional um, training, and especially mountaineering and from aspiring guides. And I met climbers that knew Rob and Gary, and we started climbing mountains that they climbed in New Zealand. And so my belief started growing more and more and more. And then I could—I actually started believing in myself. Mm. And then that's when Nepal and Everest came. And that was that was probably the biggest change in me was actually just that belief growing in myself. And mm. it, it took a number of years to, to get there. Yeah. And so, I mean, what's your, I mean, that's something that's incredibly important. Like at the moment in the world, there's more, I think self-belief is something that's really important to touch on because at the moment, people's hopes and dreams and desires have been put on hold a lot of the time. And, you know, it's more uncertain than ever before. And it's quite hard to have that belief at the moment. So based on your experiences is, I think people look for self-belief as in like there's a magic trick to build self-belief. I personally believe that it's about doing hard stuff every day and kind of challenging yourself and then getting that recognition that you can do something and that kind of spirals and it's a spiral up or it's a spiral down in my personal experience. What's your take on self-belief and, and stepping out and starting to build it if you don't have it at the moment? Well, if you don't have it at the beginning, if you don't know what you're passionate about, then that's probably the first step is, is just having... The giving yourself the chance to try and find what you want to do instead of drifting around. And then, yeah, it's opening your funnel and filling it full of ideas. And then, but it's like a computer. If you put rubbish in, you're going to get focused rubbish out. Mm. So just put good stuff in and what you're interested in and what you're passionate about. And, and everybody's individual and everybody's different. And so I think, you know, once you've, you know, I mean, when I was going to climb Everest and I set that goal probably. I don't know, maybe seven, eight years before I went, you know, some days I'd have bad days, you know, and some days I'd have good days, but my belief was still there and lying underneath me, but it wasn't, wasn't hundred percent every single day. It would, you know, go up and come down. And, you know, I went to South America and to climb a mountain called Waskaran and I failed. I didn't even get to base camp. And so that was a big eye opener. But then the reasons I failed was huge because it was huge learnings for me. Um, and that's what I did on Everest as well. My learnings, uh, I read every book there was on Everest and I wrote notes of why people failed. And because, you know, the greatest lessons of my life have been my failures, but they don't have to be my failures or your failures. They can mm. be other people's failures. So airline pilots are, are tremendous at this. We study other people's accidents so we don't make the same mistake. And you can do that in life as well. So if you want to be a runner, go and study running and, and why people fail at running. If you want to be an, a climber, study why people have climbing accidents or, or fail, that sort of thing. But you just have to, you know, things pass. You know, there's an old saying, this too shall pass. And mm. I think this has to pass what we're going through at the moment at some stage. Um, so, yeah, you just, what I do is I'm very visual. So I'll have a big whiteboard and I'll have my goal in the middle of it in my office and then I'll have it broken down into small parts. It's like a mind map. And you can do it on, a, on an iPad. They have really awesome, um, what do you call it, uh, you know, programs and apps these days. But I don't like those because you can't change them quickly. You can't touch them. You can't show someone. And when I sit back and look at my goal and I'm looking at it and I'm not feeling the best and I'm looking at this big massive Everest in the middle going, you know, how am I going to do that? It's broken down into tiny parts, this mind map. And then one part might be just find some inspiration on, on YouTube and I would just go and get on YouTube and research boots and, and I'd find this momentum and then off I'd go. Mm. I think the biggest answer to your question would be compassion for, your, for ourselves. Yeah, right. Just for yourself. 
if you're having a bad day, you're having a bad day. You know, if it's not all going to come to, you know, come around, it's don't worry about it. The other thing is, as Kiwis, we have this tall poppy syndrome in some ways. I don't really agree with it, but we are responsible for that. I'll, I would have a hundred people telling me my 777 run is an amazing idea and it was just incredible, you know, fourth person in the world to do it. And then one person says something negative about it and then I choose to f- overly focus on that one person's stupid comment. Mm. Whereas if I sat back and went, actually, that person's probably got a few issues themselves or yeah, maybe they do have a valid point, but that I'm responsible for that feeling. And if I just focus on this other 90, 999 people that say great things, um, you know, tall poppy syndrome wouldn't even exist in New Zealand. Yeah, it's funny. We're sort of wired to look for that though, aren't we? For the negative side of things and to, to be sucked down that, that pathway. I've found that even with the podcast, you know, starting it out, really putting yourself out there and having conversations, you get all this amazing feedback and then you might get someone who gives you, you know, didn't like it or whatever and you end up, you know, having to teach yourself to not pay too much yeah. attention to all the feedback that you get. Exactly. And social media, everyone sits on their, their worrying, uh, their, their warrior chairs at home and they say things. And, uh, <laughs> I haven't had too many. I've probably had one or two in my whole whole um, span but um yeah so uh yeah no I, I sort of definitely focus on the other way it's really important yeah one thing uh, there's that guy um american guy uh iron cowboy i'm not sure if you're familiar with him but he did uh 52 i think it was 52 marathons 52 states 52 days and did documented the whole thing and put it out online all to raise money for charity and um you know he was like right in the middle of the grind had his four kids on tour with him like it was just it was hectic man he was he was hurting and he jumped online to like look at you know the money that he'd raised and stuff, and it was just thousands of comments ripping him about how he was a scam artist and like all this stuff. And he's like, uh-huh. you know, I can't remember how many days, thirty days deep into this horrific thing. His legs are stuffed. He's got family shit going on in the background, and he's just looking at social. And he's just, you know, there's a pivotal moment where he sits down and cries, and you're just like, man, this guy is doing such good work, yet he's just copping all his negativity. And I think, you know, like you say, it's an. I think that's a huge part of moving forward with any of your dreams is not being too focused on the feedback, like being having that self-confidence where if someone tells you you can't do it or it's not a good idea that you don't give a shit, that you move forward anyway because it means something to you. Uh, what you one thing I picked up on before when you were talking about the funnel is that you failed on a lot of those early expeditions because you were probably putting them in for the sake of it. And I've done that in the past where I'm like, I think this is the right thing to do, but I've actually got no connection to it. And then I feel, you know, like I don't have that drive and that motivation when it really gets hard. So I guess that's another key point as well, right? Absolutely. If you're passionate about it, once you find that passion, and it can be anything that that's you're passionate about, and it's yours, not someone else's. You're not mm. doing it because you think it's cool or you think it would be neat to, you know, a lot of people want to climb Everest and they talk to me about, hey, one day I want to climb Everest, Mike. And I'm like, awesome, but this is the road it took me to get there. Um, <clears throat> there, you can tell that they're not passionate about it. So, but then when I say to them, why don't you go and trek to Everest Base Camp and climb up a little mountain called Kalapatar, which is a trekking peak next to it, and you'll get there early and watch the sunrise over Everest then make your mind up if you want to climb Everest. And they, they do. They go go along and they, they go to Kalapatar. And I haven't had anybody from there go to Everest, they actually summit it. But, um, but that opens up a whole new world. Like they, they're like, this is just, you know, a lot of people don't even think they can get to Everest Base Camp, so, mm-hmm. which is an amazing journey. And the Nepalese are awesome. Nepal's a great place as well. Yeah, talk to me about Everest. It's, um, it's one of those things. It's like the ultimate summit. <laughs> um, but what, what's it actually like to climb? Like what, what do you go through mentally? Uh, on a climb like that. Yeah, it is painful. 
it is you suffer. Yeah. You absolutely suffer. I I came back from Alpamayo, which is in South America, and it's probably 21,000 feet high, very, very technical mountain, um, very, very steep. And we lived at a base camp there, and it was hovering around zero degrees Celsius. And I remember being really uncomfortable and like, oh, I didn't like this. And I came back thinking I wasn't mentally tough. So what I used to do is get out of bed at night at, I don't know, two or three in the morning and just with a sheet and go and lie on the back deck in the middle of the night and try and, have, and, try and sleep because I was trying to toughen myself up mentally because I, was, I thought I was a bit soft. But then when you get to base camp, it's game on. You know, for me, it really was. And I was so focused. You know, I wouldn't go near any triggers in case I got um, a chest infection. I would make sure I'd wash and clean my hands. And I, was, and I was doing all the basics. I had the basic strategy and the basics of what I do out really, really well. And I'd make sure I do all of those. And then it's a matter of moving up and down the mountain. Every once in a while, I had to take a big step back to make sure I wasn't doing something dangerous because there's a lot of um, inexperience on the mountain sometimes and there's a lot of people doing stuff that you wouldn't do anywhere else from a mountaineering point of view because they're so focused on the on the summit and it's so much money like for example when i got to camp two i took it out of the book my team wanted to go to the base of the lotsy face but the ropes weren't there and so we didn't have any spear ropes to rope together for glacier travel and i said this is just crazy you can't do that and they all left and I stayed behind. And that was me taking a step back and going, because I was going with them. And I thought, this is just nuts. So there's that, that sense. And that's all the acclimatization phase. And you're going up and then you're coming down and then rest for a couple of days and you go up to the next camp. This takes weeks. But then on summit day, it is just a painful 100% focus for six days with just trying to keep your mind intact. And when you see, what the worst thing that threw me is when I saw people on Everest that st- are still there, their bodies, mm. that really upset me because that was somebody's um, family member. And so like you can actually see that on your way up? Yeah. So I saw, I'm pretty sure it was Scott Fisher sitting there with his bag on his head um, at night and my torch like sort of hit him and I looked and I got really, really upset about it. Um, but I'd been practicing that. So what I'd done is I had been sitting down practicing um, two or three times, just very, just visualizing some really serious obstacles I was going to come across. And I really visualized them until I could feel the emotion welling up inside me. And one of them was seeing people there. Another one was getting caught in an avalanche or, or et cetera. And then as soon as I could feel that emotion welling up sort of in my eyes, I knew I was at that point. And then I'd change the way I was thinking and I'd handle, and then I'd visualize myself handling every situation in a really powerful manner. Mm-hmm. What that did is it tricked my subconscious into dealing with it. So as soon as I saw saw um, that you know Scott Fisher's uh, body there, I turned away and I'd been telling myself over and over subconsciously beforehand that I was going to do three things. I was going to stop, think, and act. So I stopped, didn't look at him again. Uh, I thought where I was because we were on a very very steep slope, and I thought am I safe? So that was my and then my action was to take one step, and mm-hmm. I took one step. And that was my subconscious kicked in. So I did a lot of subconscious work. I'd also, so when I got to the summit, I'd been telling myself that when I get to the summit, I'm going all the way down to base camp. You can't do it. No one's ever done it. I think Rob did a a speed record once in history. Yeah. So when I got to camp four, my subconscious mind thought I was going all the way down to base camp. 
but I, I was never doing that. So yeah, right. I was able to sit and help my team, uh, my teammates, especially one of them who lost his toes, needed quite a bit of help at night. So, um, yeah. So you'd mentally prepared for the worst case scenarios and pretty much everything that could go wrong so that you'd already been there in your mind. You already sort of knew how you were going to react. And is that something that you, I guess that's quite a good point because um, it's like that thing where, you know, shooting for the star, you know, shooting for the moon and you hit the stars. It's like when you overdo it and you push yourself further or you could mentally prepare for the worst case scenario, you're probably going to get pretty close to that. You know, you're going to be able to push further than what you would if you were aiming for just a standard. Is that a tool that you've used in all of your adventure type things like that? Is, is visualization a massive part of you getting ready to go out and do these and achieve these uh, adventures? Yeah, huge. And even even today, um, uh, the subconscious mind is, I don't know, I spoke to Dr. Libby Weaver about it years ago, and they don't even know how powerful it is. They think it's mm. two, 300 million times more powerful than the conscious mind. So the subconscious is what beats your heart. We can't, we can't control it. We, you, know, you cut yourself at heels. We can't control that. Uh, and tapping into that is huge. The, mm. I'm pretty sure it was the Navy SEALs. I'm not sure who it was, but they talk about when you're completely spent and you cannot move, you're 30% done. Yeah, you're only 30. if someone shoots at you, <clears throat> you're going to find that other seventy percent. And they train the guys how to find that. And that's probably the biggest thing. When I when I not so much when I summited Everest. When I got back from my seven marathons, seven days, seven continents, I was flabbergasted at what human beings are actually capable of. Not yeah. me personally, because you know, I plotted around on those marathons. I'm not a marathon runner, but what we're capable of if we put our minds to it, we don't. We use a very small part of it. Another trick technique I use is there's a lady called Professor Amy Cuddy, and she does a TED talk about um, power posing. And she has two power poses that she teaches. One is where you stand in front of a mirror on your own and you put your hands above your head um, like Superman and you just stare at yourself or you put your hands on your hips as Wonder Woman. And standing in that position uh, actually releases, uh, well, actually triggers the release of a whole heap of testosterone. And what that does is that also kills all your cortisol as well. So they've, they've actually, um, you know, they've done a whole lot of scientific uh, research on that. And she took, uh, how many was it? I think it was 100, I think it was 200 participants. She taught 100 how to power pose and then 100 not. And they went for these jobs, it must have been military jobs. And of the 100 that power posed, every single person got through that first round. Really? Of the, the rest that did, only 5% oh, got through. Wow. So that's just how powerful your subconscious mind is and everybody can, can use that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that just comes back to the discipline of doing it every day, doesn't it? Do you have like a, is that something that you're practicing every day? Do you have like a routine around it or is it just when you're preparing for big events, you really tap into that? No, just when I'm preparing for, for big events. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, just every day. No, just an all. I've got three teenage kids at the moment, so it's <laughs> an all dad every day, mate. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, big events is great because especially it kills your your cortisol. My kids do it for their um for some of their exams, some of their big events as well. So as my wife, and yeah, it's it's really it's a good good technique. Going back to the thing you touched on earlier, you said um you know you can learn a lot from other people's failures and you know studying what other people have done so that they don't have to be your own uh, and you can sort of be prepared for what's coming how big a part of that of in the moment of that plane crash is as a pilot i assume that you've studied those crashes and you sort of know you've got like a you know a pretty good insight into what you should be doing and how you should be reacting how hard is it in those moments like when your life's on the line and i know you've had more than one of them to actually activate and to stay calm and to deal with the pressure is that something that naturally happens or is that you know, like, how, what does that look like? <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good question because um, well, I think what you're talking about is a fight or flight response. 
Um, so in that initial plane crash, I was very, very young pilot. I think I only had 1,200 hours. I was years away from getting into an airline, so I hadn't had that professional airline training. Um, you know, in professional airline training, we, you know, we do a whole lot of simulator work, which is just incredible. That's a whole other story. But no, in that particular moment, I remember being really scared and my hands were shaking and I knew that we weren't going to survive. And I, the only thing that brought me any comfort was actually focusing on the basics, going back to those basics. And I was just kept saying to myself, just be the best pilot you can be, Mike, right to the last minute. Mm. And I, and once I started doing that, I had to relax. Um, you know, for example, you know, if there's any other pilots out there that know what, what I mean, I asked the Hercules next door to us at about 3,000 feet. It was just, it was cruising along in formation. I said to him, can you get us a, a altimeter setting, a Q&A setting? And that was huge because... That aircraft dived down for us and he went right on, uh, almost onto the water at 50 feet on his radar altimeter and he gave us a proper Q&H setting so we could set our altimeters so we knew where the water was going to be because when you're traveling over that much that's the space, the pressure changes all the time and that's how we know um, where, the, where the, um, the surface is. So things like that, so just going back to that basic tool, that really helped me. There's been three times in my life that I've had this overwhelming feeling of I'm going to get killed or someone. The first one was that plane crash. Mm -hmm. And if I have something else like that, I would hope that I would um, react the same way and I should react the same way, but everyone's a human being. So you don't really know, but my, that's my fight or flight, fight or flight response is quite interesting. The second time was my little girl was, when she was being born, she was, came out too quickly and we hadn't even had time to get to the hospital and she was born at home on the bed. And when she came, and I, I delivered her, when she came out, she was completely blue and wasn't breathing and had a cord around her neck. It was, I, I, I wrote about it in the book, it was absolutely, and I remember this overwhelming feeling of someone's going to die and I remember trying to be really calm and I remember, you know, doing the right stuff and, Sometimes when you're in that flight or fight response, that initial, that initial you know, fright, if you do something and you move, then you snap out of it. You're not frozen anymore. And when she came out, and I couldn't believe it, um, the first thing I did was pull the umbilical cord from around her neck, and it was just a natural reaction. And then wow. that kept me, kept me into response. And then the last time was when on Everest again when uh, an avalanche almost hit us, and I had a choice of either running or staying where I was or trying to hide and I took off and uh, luckily they launched didn't get us which is yeah what's your relationship to fear my relationship to fear I've got a healthy respect for it I remember saying to a guy called Kenton Cool now Kenton's climbed Everest he's a friend of mine he's climbed Everest 13 times I think I said to him, are you not scared of heights? And he goes, the day I'm not scared of heights, Mike, is the day I'm going to get killed. Yeah. You always have to be scared of heights. But just respect your fear. Fear is really good because it, it can drive you in some ways as well. And you can, you know, especially with heights, you respect it as well. But you can't let it control you. You know, if, when I, I don't like heights. I hate heights. And when I'm rock climbing, if I look down, I instantly get Elvis legs and they start shaking and wobbling and, you know, and yeah, so I don't, so I've learned to control it. I don't look down. I look concentrated around myself or up or et cetera. So, yeah, yeah it's interesting. And cause I mean, obviously fear, you know, fear probably kills more dreams than anything else, right? That's the, that's the old saying, but I guess going back to that, what you're talking about with the subconscious mind as well, it's, you, there's a lot of power there where you, instead of focusing on what can go wrong, is focusing on what can go right, right? And visualizing the, the proper outcomes and the outcomes that you want rather than getting all your focus on what could go wrong. 
Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I like Mike Tyson's. I think Mike Tyson saying he said everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yeah, yeah, it's um, Mike Tyson. Yeah, so you've got to, um, you know, especially on expeditions. You know, I even even with my teams today, I do sit down and I talk about what with my um, guides. I talk about what could go wrong. What are we going to do if this happens? What do you think about this person? And we're always having meetings the whole way up. So we're we're handling problems when they're this big, or talking about the problems when they're this big. Knowing that we can handle them when they're huge, but not letting them get to that stage. Yeah, nice. It's it's a really good point. What what about like mentally when you've got when you're in those places, whether it's on Everest or or whatever it is, where you need to draw on something else? Like I know that you've said that you visualize going above and beyond, but are there certain things that you draw on, to, like when you're really hurting, uh, that kind of get you through or any kind of mental chambers that you open up to go to like a different place, like almost like a, a different ego or a different guide, or are you always just kind of using that plan and preparation to get you through those moments? Well, yeah. I mean, on Everest, the, there was, you take one step and you're exhausted. You can't move. And so I would, you know, whenever I thought about turning around, it was too hard. I'd just stop. I just stop and, and so I wouldn't even entertain that thought. As soon as that thought came into my mind, turn around, it, it went. Even when huge winds and a, um, a storm was coming in, we, you know, I, I still kept saying to myself, just the next anchor, just mm-hmm. go to the next anchor and see how it is, you know, and or just the next step. Uh, when the early on in the climb, we had a, you know really horrendous winds coming, where we were holding on to the mountain. You know, I know what wind is uh, from Wellington, sixty knots. I see, you know, a lot of the time, but this was probably 80, 90 knots. You, you just couldn't, if you stood up, you'd be blown off the mountain. A lot of people turned around, but we just kept saying to ourselves, Sherpa and I, while I was saying he was, he was following me, I just was just saying, just hold on, it'll pass, go to the next mountain, uh, go to the next anchor. And then just that point, then you find this thing called momentum. Once you've got your momentum, it's magic, you're off. And even the 777 run, there were so many times that, that I was what thought I was going to give up. I'd just say just next power pole, just the next power pole. You know, yeah. <laughs> when you're doing those things, like with the seven seven seven, for example, where do they come from? Like, is there something that is it is, is it the sense of fulfillment that you're trying to get at the end of it? Is it something that you're trying to prove to yourself or to other people? Like, what's the driver behind doing all that stuff? Um, yeah, that's another good question. So when I got back from Everest, I had to find something. You know, adventure was in my blood. And, and I found that I really liked, liked adventure. And I had to find something that was just as difficult as Everest and as dangerous, but from a point of failing, not getting myself killed, because I've you know, got three kids. So I started, I just started filling, you know, doing what I, I talked about. I, I was filling my funnel. I was putting, reading lots and lots of books. And I gave myself some compassion. It was probably two years before, three years before I even came up with the idea. And I was just reading lots of books, wondering what I was going to do. Um, I was going to go to K2, but then my wife said to me, that's another life and another wife. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't do that. Um, But then I read a book by Serena Fines, and he uh, ran seven marathons, seven days, seven conference, and then that was me. Boom, I was going to do that. Uh, But I hadn't even run half a marathon. (laughs) So I got myself a website, got myself a... um, I even got a sponsor. You know, my hero was uh, actually Rod Dixon's behind me. He gave me that photo of himself. Um, he and I went out for a run, and I ran five k, and everything fell apart. My back hurt, my legs hurt. I, I walked home with my tail between my legs, and but I wasn't worried. I sat down, or I stood there, and I looked at my mind map that I had on the wall, 
with a 777 in the beginning, in the middle of it, and it was broken down into all parts, like, you know, logistics, finance, all, all that sort of stuff. And then one of the parts was broken down right down to this tiny little bit, which said, learn to run off YouTube. So I sat down and I Googled how to run. And so that was, that was great until I then gave myself a stress fracture because I wasn't training properly and I, wasn't, I, never, I didn't get any proper professional advice. Um, so then I worked out that I, wasn't, I didn't like running. I hate running. But I loved the adventure that running. So running was my vehicle to get the adventure. And when I, once I got that in my mind, then I was off. And, you know, going to the Falkland Islands was super exciting. Running around the middle of the night in Santiago with, you know, 50 stray dogs behind you on your own. You know, the challenges were huge. Um, getting on an aeroplane as soon as you finished the marathon, you know, that, that sort of stuff. Um, the logistics was just amazing. And that's really, yeah, I really liked that. It was cool. It was really good. So you're just, you're driven by that challenge, obviously, like across yeah. the board. That's that's what does it for you. Well, what, what's... What are some of the most fulfilling things? Because you've also done, you do a lot of stuff where you give back to people and you use your experiences to help shape better lives for other people. You know, like you, you did the thing like where you returned the replica um, to the monks, oh, which yeah. is a pretty awesome story. But, you know, you're obviously you're on here giving your time now. The, what's the balance between like going out and doing these crazy challenges and, and always seeking that uh, and the fulfillment that you get at the end of that versus like using your experiences to connect with people and help other people. What are some of the most fulfilling things that you've done? Well, some of the most fulfilling things is giving to, uh, is unconditional um, giving to others, mm-hmm. not expecting anything back. So, you know, that, um, that replica of the Yeezy skull, you know, the originals were stolen in the early 90s and they, when they got stolen, they took away their, their income from this one monastery. So I managed to get with... with um, uh, a guy called Rob Five helped me uh, introduce me to Sir Richard Taylor, and they went to, went to workshops, made me these replicas. Uh, it had a lot of history, a huge amount of history on, on this hand and the skull, and I took them back up, and that reinstated their little income. Well, that that monk um, wrote to me a little while later, and he said, "Hey, I need six hundred kilos of cement because a big stupa has been uh, broken, and it's one of the statues, and it's really important to their village." And um, you know, some wild Tibetans have come across and destroyed it. Could you help us? Well, there's no roads. I mean, the nearest road is 300 miles away, and he wanted 650 kilos of cement. It was crazy. <laughs> so, but he wrote on the bottom of his email, uh, "If you help us, you will have a good next life." So I wrote to my friends saying, "I'm selling bags of cement for 100 US dollars. Anybody want one?" And they, and so we got them all the cement and. He said, right, we want to put a plaque saying thank you to Mike Allsop and his friends. He said, no, we don't want any plaques whatsoever. I said, if you really want to do something that, which I'd like, is I'd like you to wait and uh, not paint it, and then I'll bring one of my teams over and we'll paint it together. But I don't want any plaques. So that sort of stuff, you just walk past there on your own. I took my kids there, and I know that that's the stupa that my friends and I helped build. We carry on to this little village. There's a house, and... We, a whole heap of my friends and I got together and we, a chap on Everest was a, well, a cook got killed on, in the uh, Everest um, avalanches in 2015. Uh, and when he got killed, they, um, his, not only his income, uh, not only was killed, but his family's income was gone. His wife lost her father, his daughter, her, sorry, her husband. Um, his daughters lost their father and so on, so and so. But the worst thing is their family home got destroyed in this little village called Pangbeche. So we, um, 
got together and we did a couple of fundraisers and we and managed to have enough money to build them a new house, which is quite funny. So when I walked through the village, I knew which house it was, and there was the the you know the guy I know, his wife. Um, she was out front, and I said hello, and she sort of gave me a really dirty look and ignored me and ran off because she didn't know who it was. Um, but that was fine. I just walked past. I knew that my friends and I had helped build that house. And then we went. a huge sense of fulfillment. Yeah, it was awesome. And But there was nothing. I didn't want her to give me anything back. I didn't want mm. any recognition for it. The recognition was walking past looking at it. And that, mm. was, that, was, that was cool. And that goes on. You know, when I take people up Kilimanjaro, my best client I've ever had was so nervous when she got to, um, to Africa that her hands were shaking when she was drinking her beer sitting around the pool before we went. <laughs> and every day she just got better and better and better. And on summit night, she said to me, hey, can you come and have a look at all my gear? And she was all ready to go and she just summited in style and just helping her, just just you know, just showing her where the mountain was and giving her a little bit of guidance and then just seeing her grow. That was just awesome. It was really, really cool. Mm. You you take your kids back to Everest as well. I think you've taken all of your kids now back to Everest. Is it on their seventh birthday or something? You go and show them. What? Why? What is it? What are the lessons that you want them to pick up from doing that? Well, um, so yeah, so on this, on when they're seven, it's a rite of passage. They have to go and see Everest with dad. Um, my wife and I sort of came up with that, and that was quite clever because it stopped me from climbing. Because when I, <laughs> when I took a step back, it wasn't the actual mountain that was the most important thing. It was the the Sherpa community and the culture and the people in the in the country of Nepal as well and the Himalayas that were so special. So I could take my children and have a different um, sort of uh, experience, which was just as magic. You know, seeing their interactions with the Sherpa people are just priceless. It really is. And it's not easy. I wouldn't recommend taking a seven-year-old there. It's probably a bit young unless you really know what you're doing. Um, and I had a lot of friends that could help me. Um, but, you know, 10, 12 that sort of age is perfect and it's it's just priceless and it really i know it's like your little emotional tank inside you you know it sort of really fills it up and then but then the more so my, so wendy my wife you know really encouraged me to do that but then the more i give to her the more she gives back to me so it comes from a position of giving so she loves scottish castles and she's been to scotland i think she's been four times so far to these scottish castles that she that's her ever that's what she loves yeah and yeah so yeah, taking my kids there, that was pretty special. And when they turned 14, they get another trip with dad, but it's their choice. And it has to be outside the limits of what you think is possible. It has to be really safe and it has to be good for somebody else. It has to be good for a community. So we've I've done two of them. I've got one more to go. So That's awesome. That's so cool. It must be just like as a kid going out and doing that stuff, particularly with your dad, it must be something, you know, they're lifelong memories made there. Eh? That's really awesome. Yeah, the, um, the, the seven-year-old trip was awesome and it worked really well. And then the 14-year-old, my daughter, went to Everest Base Camp with me, but she, we took two stand-up paddleboards. And she, it's her idea. She came up with it. I wanted to paddle the world's highest lake. And so I said to her, how are we going to get the paddleboards there? She said, oh, we're just going to get some of German Sherpa's yaks and we're going to put them on those. And, <laughs> and uh, went to the lake and uh, stood up on the lake and paddled around this lake, um, which is yeah, crazy. It was just crazy. And she was 13 at the time and she's got a little world record. My oldest boy, he went to Kilimanjaro and he wrote to Guinness Book of World Records and he's got a world record. That's, he's still trying to get it at the moment, but it's 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 there um, to play the world's highest board game. Wow. So, yeah, and each of them had their own little charities. Um, he had the Auckland City Mission and Maya was um, a charity in, uh, in Nepal. And so they raised money for other people and gave back. 
So the poor last guy, Dylan's his name, he's 14 now, but the COVID's come along, so we just have to adapt. We'll, we'll wait a, a year or so. Yeah. With all these things, like even, ta- you know, taking the kids out and, um, you know, somebody gave us doing the 777, the running and all that stuff, I think it pro- it's probably pretty easy for people to go, oh, like, it, he's got that built into him and, and, like, he's a special type of character. Do you still battle with the, you know, inner negotiation <laughs> and, I guess, the inner dialogue around when you take these challenges on? Because, like, yesterday, for example... I told myself from the morning that I was going to go out, hit the road and go for a run. And it took me, I went, literally ended up hitting the pavement at quarter to 10 last night because I negotiated with myself so well all day. <laughs> Are you, like, where do you sit on excuses? And it, it's probably pretty easy for people to think that it's just easy for you. But do you have that inner dialogue? And if so, you know, how do you deal with it? How do you get into action so consistently? It's probably a trick. This, this, yeah, this is good. This is not a good question as well. There's probably a trick um, that Tony Robbins, you know, 20 years ago when I did one of his courses, that's probably the thing that stayed with me for a long time, is say if I'm going to do a motorcycle adventure, I can't ride a motorbike. Well, two years ago, I couldn't ride a motorbike. But I wanted to ride a motorbike, an old Royal Enfield across the Himalaya. So I started telling people I was going to do it. <clears throat> and what I was doing, I was giving myself a bit of leverage. And then there were certain dates that I had to get my license by, otherwise I couldn't do it. And then I booked a trip. And then I had a whole lot of people that wanted to come with me. Um, so, you know, I, was, I gave myself leverage there. So I was telling people that I was doing stuff to, because I knew if I just sat there and everyone's guilty of this, they go, one day I wish I could do this. Totally. One day I wish I could go and ride a motorbike across the Himalayas. Hardly anyone turns that into actual reality. Totally. Yeah, and to turn it into reality, you've got to have a plan. You've got to make sure you have a plan. Part of that plan is one tiny part is I actually tell people I'm I'm going, and I'm yeah. brave enough to tell people. I don't jump on social media and tell people, but I tell people I care about mm-hmm. and that I trust and that I look up to. Yeah, and then that's the difference. That's the big difference too with you know jumping on social media, telling everyone, "Hey, I'm going to do this." Versus just telling people that means something to you. Yeah, outside accountability is massive towards achieving anything, isn't it? It's um, yeah. it, it's one of those things, and I really that's a really key point as well as what you say about not just telling anybody. I think with outside accountability, it's about you know finding the person in that area that you want to let down the least, that you have the most respect for. That's something that I've always drawn on in the past. Like if you have a goal of uh, losing thirty kilos and and reshaping your health and fitness, find the person in your life who you admire around health and fitness the most that you will not want to let down in that space and go and tell them, you know? So I think that's a key point. Absolutely. And it works. It really does. And the other thing is if you don't, you know, like I say to people, you know, with your dreams, if you set yourself a goal of, for example, going to Kilimanjaro and you don't do it the first year, you haven't failed. You know, you can do it the next year or the next or the year after. As long as you don't give up, the only failure is, is not trying. You know, that's, and like you said before, the fear of failure has killed, it's called more dreams than failure ever has. Yeah. <laughs> but not trying. So John Kerwin told me that, not trying, that's the only failure. Mm. Well, it's guaranteed failure right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So just to, on the topic of goals, and, uh, you know, you can Google goals and you'll get a thousand different frameworks that you can set and ways that you can do it and things that you should do. What works for you? Do you simply take out a piece of paper and write down what you're going to do? Is there, like, what system do you implement around setting goals and dreams and, and where you're actually going moving forward? So I make sure my goal is I'm passionate about it. I make sure I've got this, this real passion that I really want to do it. And, I, and the way I do that is by 
um, feeding myself with really good information. And, you know, so I, I read a lot of books. <clears throat> it's really simple these days, hopping on the internet and looking at bits and pieces. I I think big. I think huge. Mm. I really, I don't think small. I think really, really big. And I overthink big in a way. So then that opens my mind to more ideas. And then they get more and more and more focused. And then I find this passion of what I'm really, really, really passionate about. And once I know what I want to do, then I actually get their mind map and I make sure I can touch, see, feel, change, show people my goal. And I do that on a whiteboard. And I do it with my kids as well, with, uh, you know, like for their, their adventures. We put their goal there and we, we write everything down for them um, so I can see it. So I walk past every day and I can see it. And it works. It, it yeah. really, really works with big goals like that. So it's, I haven't found the key to fitness that way yet. <laughs> I'm 50 now. I'm 51 now. So, so, and I think, you know, I wish I could take that and put it into that fitness. I um, think, I think, mate, if you can summit Everest and run seven marathons in seven days, there's a, there's a level of fitness that you've already acquired. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. Hey, what are you most proud of? Like when you look back on everything that you've done, are there certain expeditions that you've done or just as a dad or as a person what what are you most proud of at 50 looking back now well it, i mean the two different ways the, without a doubt probably my kids but just before them i suppose the just the way i've climbed everest so i went unguided and i remember being completely exhausted back at base camp when i summited and i'm on the satellite phone satellite phones were you know pretty new in 2007 and my wife said my what bloody legend i can't believe you've done this and i went hearing her say that and i looked at everest and i was like yeah i can't believe i did that either you know and and i just from going from new zealand over there on my own i turned up at Kathmandu. i'd run out of money i had 500 dollars left to buy some boots and I'd forgotten about my Sherpa tip, which is I wanted to give them $500. So I turned to Everest with no boots. And I, bought, I managed to borrow a pair and still made the summit uh, unguided. So that's probably you know, one aspect. The other aspect is probably taking my kids um, to Nepal, all three of them at seven. I managed to, you know, all, it was quite you know, difficult. Um, so, um, you know, and actually following through and taking all three of them. Um, that's that's one thing I'm really proud of, and just giving back, and that's given me the, you know, that adventure has given me the ability to give back to other people mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, what about just touching on the on dreams and setting big dreams because that's really important. I, I think a lot of the time in society we're squashed down into not doing that, into setting little goals and really achievable stuff, and um, and you know the dreams are kind of in some way through the societal systems knocked out of you by the time you're a teenager, if you don't have the right influences around you, what's the balance between like, or have you got any, anything to add on setting big dreams, but not so big that they paralyze you? I know that you're the type of person that, you know, you've talked about your action plan and you've talked about making sure that you've got a plan to get there, but how important is it to also surround yourself with the right people? Because I'm assuming on all of these expeditions, you haven't just come up with them, or maybe you have. <laughs> you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but you haven't just, that's just not a singular drive. Like you've got your wife behind you. You've obviously surrounded yourself with mentors in those areas. Um, if you kind of got the ambition to go out and do all this big stuff, but no one around you is playing big. Yeah. So, I mean, they, you know, they talk about, you know, your friends and some of your five friends is who you are, that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's, that's I suppose, reasonably true as well. But um, 
No, surround yourself. I always surrounded myself with really good professional people. So when I was climbing, uh, like I said it before, I went to uh, Mount Aspiring Guides or Aspiring Guides now, and I got really professional, hardcore mountaineers to teach me how to be a mountaineer. And those skills was huge. When I failed my first time trying to do the 777 run, I wasn't getting proper coaching. So I reached out to Lisa Tamati, and she was absolutely amazing because she's awesome. she had done this plus so much more before, you know. She was, I remember her saying to me, it's only seven marathons, Mike. Come yes. on, put yourself together. Oh, oh. You she's know, done and 140 ultras or something, old Lisa, isn't yeah. she? But reaching out for, for help from people is huge to achieve yeah. your goal. That's absolutely massive. Um, people come to me and they go, oh, Mike, I'm going to run that length of New Zealand, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what, what do you recommend? And I say the first thing you do is you get yourself an amazing coach. And mm. I, I obviously recommend um, uh, Lisa. And it doesn't matter what it costs. Honestly, it doesn't matter what it costs. If you're going to spend fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 doing this adventure up and down the country, you can spend a couple of thousand dollars getting proper coaching um, sessions. 100%. So that, that's, that's huge. But I think, you know, there's... The more you read and the more you look at things, like the book um, by the Winner's Bible, and I can't remember who it's by. Yeah, I've got that on the shelf behind me. Oh, here it is. Kerry Speckman. Kerry Speckman, yep. Yeah. Dr. Kerry Speckman. Dr. Kerry Speckman, that's right. So, you know, that's absolutely awesome because he talks in there, if you have this undying goal and you want to be a number one tennis player in the world and you're four foot 11 and you're probably not going to do that. <laughs> You know what I mean? So they have to be, and reading his book like that has to be, it's, it's quite realistic. And so setting yourself goals that are huge but realistic is, mm. is, is interesting. Like, you know, later in life, my risk has gone down quite a bit, um, what, I'm, what I'm happy to accept. So something like riding a motorbike across the Himalayas, that was, you know, real worry. But when you get there and you take it step by step, and, you, and I had a proper guide on a motorbike with me as well, you know, that's it's it's actually doable. Do you struggle to switch off from all this stuff? Like when when you're at home and you don't have adventures going on, does that affect mental health or anything like that? Are you constantly seeking it, or have you found a balance there? Uh, I found a balance now, especially with with kids. Uh, I'm not um, well. No, with my little guiding company, so I can fill my little adventure tank by helping other people. Right. So I've been I've been to Nepal 14 times, and now I've got a whole team of people set up. Um, so I can either help people go themselves or every once every year or once every two years I'll actually guide a team um, and then I've set them up so set this whole business up so that you can get really professional um, you know summits of say Kilimanjaro for example at a proper price you know mm. you go straight to the people that do it which is called Zara Tours which I'm affiliated with and it's two thousand dollars to climb the mountain so you don't have to pay six ten thousand dollars which yeah. ripped off and then that you know, really excites me as well. Um, but when I need to switch off, because, yeah, if your mind is chattering too much, um, it's exhausting sometimes. I have a little app, app on my phone called Simply Being, and it's a guided meditation, and you put that on for 10, 15 minutes, and, and you're away. That's fine. It just calms your, your mind down. Just uh, what about in terms of managing emotions? Uh, there's one key thing that I, um, I don't know whether you wrote it or I heard you um, speak on it but you mentioned the summit to Everest now obviously that's the hardest and probably the most dangerous part of Everest from what I take it is that last stretch and you sort of feel like you're already there you probably want to celebrate um I heard you say that you um 
as you got to the top, you sort of went to celebrate and, you know, there was even tears of joy and then you just realised that there was just no place for emotion. It was too dangerous. Yeah. Um, can you talk to us about that? Because I, I found that really fascinating because I think a lot of the time that emotional intelligence and that ability to to block out emotions when we're going after things, particularly when we want them, when they mean stuff to us, is um, where a lot of us run into trouble. But that was a really pivotal point in one of the talks that I heard from you. Yeah, well, that happens. So I got past the Hillary step, which is quite, you know, the, the hardest part, and then it shallows off. But my Sherpa that was following me and was helping me, he um, got caught up in a bit of traffic, and just two or three people were coming down. Um, so I carried on, and then I, I started getting really dizzy, and, and I got quite disorientated, and I collapsed into the snow. And as I collapsed into the snow, my vision colour changed and started getting tunnel vision. And I remember thinking I'm about to vanish. You know, 40 people have vanished on the stretch from the Hillary Steps to the summit. And this is what it's like to vanish. I'm, I'm gone. And there's nothing I could do. I, I was slumped in the snow. Just before I went unconscious, uh, Lakpa, who was my Sherpa, tapped me on the shoulder and he knew what had happened. I'd run out of oxygen. Even though I checked my bottle, but I don't know what it was. Yeah, anyway, he changed my bottle and saved my life. And then when I came around that corner and he was just behind me, and I saw the summit of Everest. There was no one there, just him and I. And I remember thinking, holy smoke, Mike, you have worked so hard for this. And then I felt a tear, felt all the emotion welling up. I felt like a tiny little kid, to tell the truth. Mm. And the, the emotion welled up and I felt a tear trickle down underneath my goggle. And then I felt it freeze on my cheek. And then something just snapped. And it was like, just clicked. There's no space for emotion. None. This is just. Uh, too dangerous, just, you know, pull your head in, you know, and I just turned to Lakpa and I said, we're going to take a couple of photos, Lakpa, one phone call and we're gone, let's go. And he went, okay, and went to the summit. And I think that's part of the subconscious training that I'd done. I knew the summit was huge um, and dangerous and you're only halfway, you've got to get back down. And so I wasn't going to really celebrate on that summit uh, and I didn't. Um, so, yeah, I don't think I ever even raised my hands above my head on the summit, I just stood there. Oh, there's a cutout behind me. I don't know if you can see it. Yeah, I can, yeah. Book publisher did it, and I was just standing on the summit. <laughs> it's not a very good pose. But no, that was part of the part of the visualisation training I'd done where I wasn't going to, you know, the summit was a very dangerous place. And to tell the truth, uh, you know, I wanted to get out of there real quick. Yeah. Mm. What about um, when you faced, you know, particularly, I guess, in the plane crash, when you faced death like that, when you, because I'm assuming that on that, you thought you were going to die. Like you kind of accepted that and come to that realization that it was, yeah, with the plane crash. Like it was pretty, it was pretty unlikely that you were going to get out of that one. Um, What's, what's that? Are there things that go through your mind? Like what, what came to mind for you when you had kind of made that acceptance that shit, you're probably not going to get out of this one and that you're probably going to die in the plane crash. Was it, was it that you hadn't lived that there was so much to do? Was it family? Like what's going through your mind in that, in that, moment if you focus well for me i don't know if this is like for anyone else if you focus on the reality of what's happening you'd be a mess you wouldn't Mm. be able to function it's just you're just too overwhelmed you're too scared you're too frightened you're you're just a human being and so i knew that i remember you know like i said my hands were shaking so much that i had to find a way And, and for me i would focus on being a being an awesome pilot um i think if i 
you know, my mind was racing. I remember thinking about some of the most bravest fighter pilots in the world during World War II. Some of them wet themselves when they're so frightened. And I remember thinking, is that what's going to happen to me because I'm so frightened? And then I remember thinking, just stop thinking. Just get all those feel- those, those thoughts, push them out, focus on, on flying, focus on flying. And I kept just saying that to myself and to stop myself getting overwhelmed because you're just so overwhelmed. And I think that was a really, and I didn't know how to do this. No one, no one tells you to do this. This is just something I found out, uh, you know, by, by luck myself. And I think in that situation, you just focus on what you're doing, you know, and especially, you know, in other situations which have been pretty hairy, if you just focus on what you're supposed to be doing, you know, especially if you're in that fright or flight state, just focus on what you're doing and then you'll find this momentum, um, which, is, which really helps. You, um, there's a pivotal moment in that crash story as well where I think you were told to jump into the back of the plane because that's where you had the most chance of survival and you decided not to. You sat up front and rode with your mate who was the pilot. Can you talk us through that? Because I think that's a pretty powerful um, part of that story as well. Yeah. So I got out of the co-pilot seat and I cut the fuel lines at the back and we were transferring fuel from the back of the tanks, back tanks to the front tanks. And then... We, even though we had three hours of fuel on board, we were one hour offshore. We couldn't access any more fuel. So in the end, the captain, um, he shouted, hey, Mike, this is it. We're going in. We, there's no choice. We're running on fumes. And so then I actually just, you know, I mean, I'll teach you into a secret. I'm not brave, and I wasn't brave at the time, but I had this thing called momentary courage, and I just had the courage to get into that seat. And I got into that, that front seat, and I sat there, and that's all I had the courage to do, nothing else. I, I did my seatbelt up and then, you know, uh, that was, yeah, and I just had the courage just to get into that seat. That was it. And it's taken me a long time. It's, it's taken me maybe, gosh, when did they happen? They happened in 1994, so that's 25, almost, you know, it's getting close to 30 years ago. Um, but it's taken me that long to actually put that into words. And it's, I call it momentary courage, right? Mm, yeah, I've got but, a in a, hang on. Oh. So I've got it on my a business card, and I'll just hold it up so you can see it. I don't know if you can see that, but I'll read it out. Um, you don't have to be brave all the time. Just the courage to take the first step. I call it momentary courage, and it's a moment that changes your life. Mm. I really like that because you can use it in so many ways, you know, especially at the moment when the world's a big, massive, giant mess, and there's no other easy way to put it. You know, this, just to have the courage to maybe ask someone if they're okay or just say to somebody, hey, would you like to meet me for a coffee? Even if you don't know what to say because you're not a psychologist, you know, but you can listen. And But just taking, and then I've used this so many times with my, with my kids, just take that first step of, you know, we don't know whether we can actually do a stand-up paddle in the world's highest lake, but we can take the first step to try and get there, you know? Mm. And then you find this magic thing. We've all got it inside us. It's, it's your momentum. And then poof, off you go. Yeah, that's so, awesome. I actually just wrote that down as I was, as you were saying it. I just wrote down momentary courage because I think that's that's a really really amazing point. I think it's almost like a framework for being really intentional in moments where you need to be right. When moments where you could go one way or the other, it's like that fight or flight. But if you can keep that and have that framework front of mind, it's a great way. Once you once you, it's usually one step, and then the rest of it's momentum. Yes. <laughs> particularly with tough conversations, um, like, you know, you want to leave your job, all those key pivotal points. There's all this shit where you try and talk yourself out of it, but you need one one bit of momentary courage. I really like that. Yeah. 
the Richard Branson, he talks about if somebody offers you a position or a job or an opportunity that you have no idea how to do it and you don't know what to do, you just know it's an amazing opportunity, just always say yes. Yeah. You know, that's the same thing. That's, he's talking about momentary courage. Other people have a thing called 10 seconds of courage. Same thing. You just, you can't be brave all the time. It's on, when I was on Everest, you know, just the thought of climbing that mountain was overwhelming. So I just say to myself, get up in the morning, have a really awesome breakfast, get yourself ready. That's what you need to do. And then you'd find this momentum and, and off, off you go. Yeah. I love it. If you, if you had like, um, based on your experiences, if you had, could only pass on like a few bits of advice, let's say three pieces of advice, whether it's to your kids or to a younger Mike or to someone out there who's listening to maximize your life, to, I guess, live life to the fullest. What would those kind of three key lessons that you've had over your lifetime be that you'd like to pass on? Jeez. Um, no pressure. Yeah. Uh, belief. Believe in yourself is the first one. Believe in yourself. Don't limit yourself. You know, human beings and people are so massively capable of doing pretty much anything they want. Just don't limit yourself. Have belief and get out and don't be afraid to fail will be the second one. Like, just do not be afraid to fail. The only failure is not trying. That would be the second. And the third one would be, I don't know, just along the same lines, get out and give it a go. You know, life's short. You've got to make the most of it, you know. Once you've done something that you thought was hard or you thought was impossible, you know, with, with, whether it's trick to base camp, whether it's run your first 5K run or you've done something that's difficult, you actually develop a whole new set of beliefs inside you. Mm. And those beliefs are huge and they're very, very powerful because those beliefs allow you to go on to, to uh, achieve better and better things. And I think that's one of the keys as well. So the biggest one would be belief. Believe in yourself. Don't be afraid to fail. Get out and give it a go. Yeah, I love that. Great great advice to pass on. <laughs> hey, I just want to take a moment, Mike, to acknowledge you. I um, obviously came across your work a while ago. I, I probably got that book. When was this released? 2014, 2013, I think, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it must have been fresh off the shelf. Mum got it for me. I remember reading it at the time and being like, wow. And then I think I heard you do it, um, it might have been Ted Auckland. Oh, yeah. Um, and there was you and a guy called Vaughan, who I remember, who just like, I don't know, it was like the zest for life. I think I was having a bit of a flat period at the time, and I remember it was just like, shit, you know, get rid of all the complicated stuff. Just get out there and live. Like, <laughs> get out there and make the most of it. Be grateful for what you've got, and just get out there and make the most of life. And... um I just really admire your attitude and your, uh, I guess, your perspective, you know, and then the way that you go about doing things. Um, I think it's very inspirational. And I hope that anyone who tunes into this um, feels better for, for the conversation, and I'm sure they will. So I really appreciate you giving up your time. I guess, um, in closing, any final thoughts, anyone out there? It's obviously a tough time at the moment. Um, is there anything else that you want to communicate in this interview that you think is going to add value to people? Uh, just... Be kind to yourself, be kind to others, you know, have practice a bit of acceptance, maybe maybe look up what acceptance is because I don't really know what it is either, <laughs> but um, practice a bit of acceptance and it's going to be tough for a while and we can get through it and if we, if you need help, put your hand up and you know, have the courage just to take that first step and just ask for some help um, and this will pass, it has to pass, it will pass at some stage, yeah, right. just be, be kind. Where's the best place to track you down online, mate? I know you're active on social and you've got your website and all your books and services. Um, people want to find out more about what you do. Uh, where do they go? Uh, so I've just got just my website, michaelsop.co.nz or Instagram. I'm michaelsopnz. 
Uh, and I'm on TikTok. TikTok is a great time waste to hold it. Yeah, I've lost so a few. Many TikToks, but... Yeah, you're looking at it. It's quite interesting. Um, yeah, just on social or I'll my website and they can contact me. Any, No problem at all. Awesome. Hey, Mike, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, man. Awesome. Hey, thanks very much. So there you have it, guys. That was the interview with Mike Allsop. What an amazing guy. I feel so much more inspired after having that conversation with Mike. So hopefully you feel the same for joining in on that podcast. Um, like I said in the intro, you know, Mike's just someone who seems to just consistently challenge himself and, you know, get the most out of life through his adventures and through pursuing his passions. Uh, you know, his story also reminds you of what humans are capable of. Uh, like he said, he's an extraordinary, uh, sorry, an ordinary guy who's out there taking on and doing extraordinary things. And I think there's probably something in that for all of us. Um, so I really hope that there was a few lessons, a few insights uh, or some inspiration in that episode for you. If you enjoyed it, please share it out on social media. Uh, like I said in the intro, every share, every rating and review really helps us grow and reach new ears. And the podcast is getting some momentum now. So uh, I really appreciate all of you who are sharing things out um, and getting behind it. Uh, and if you want to learn more about Mike, you can go to mikealsop.co.nz. Uh, that's his website. He's also the author of two books, High Altitude and High Adventure, which I highly recommend. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for tuning in. To everyone who shares, leaves a rating and review, I really appreciate you uh, and I look forward to connecting with you in the next episode.